0: Faith Matters
1: as you are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a programme devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this programme is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, Channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1 Faith Matters, the name of the program and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome back to Familiar Faces on the Faith Matters panel here. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters. <inaudible> for uh, in terms of a brief introduction for our viewers of course to my right is abdul ghani Jangir khan sahib who's a senior missionary here in the uk and also head of the french desk assalamu Sahib. and to his right is of course dr zaid ahmad khan sahib who is president of the qaza board the board of jurisprudence here in the uk welcome uh, gentlemen and we'll get straight to it as they say our first set of questions come from uh nurlan sadiqi assalamu Nurul and thank you for sending in your questions. Um, They're sort of related to various elements and practices within uh, Islam. Um, Her first question is to do with namaz, the prayer, and uh, after reciting Surah Fatiha, which is of course the first prayer which is recited in all obligatory prayers in Islam, she's asking the question, do you have to say the words before before reciting the next surah? Or is that optional? And I think if we sort of make it in practice, there have been instances where in parts of the world you do hear Imams who are perhaps leading do begin the next verse with Rahim. and others. Uh, it's more common practice perhaps that that isn't the case. And she's wondering, is it optional or is it something that should be followed in a particular way? Jahangir
0: well, if you're the Imam, then usually you wouldn't say the Bismillah, you know, following the Surah Al-Fatihah out loud, but you would recite it in your heart. And also, anyone else who would be following you in prayer, they would also perhaps want to say it <coughs> in their heart. If they're praying on their own, then it would be the same anyway. Um, y- when you pray on your own, you don't usually recite out loud in, in any case. So, uh, there again, the Bismillah would be silent. However, if an imam does decide to say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, it's not forbidden. And uh, there's nothing bad about it. So it's just a, a question of whether they want to do it or not. But, but they received practice in the Jamaat Ahmadiyya, anyway, following the Imam Mahdi alayhi salam, who, may I remind, did come to decide between what's right and what's best and what's not. You know, In, in our practice, we, and according to the sunnah, we don't recite the Bismillah ar-Rahim out loud usually. So that, that's our practice.
1: So it said uh, silently. I think that's very clear. Before we move on from this particular question, though, Dr. saw sometimes quite often within, again, different Muslim communities you will see certain prayers. For example, the silent prayer within the Anvia Muslim community when uh, we perform the silent prayer, the du'a, as it's called commonly, hands are raised. But apart from the initiation of that prayer to say that the prayer is about to begin and then whoever's leading the prayer saying I mean at the end. Generally it's done in silence, Yep. other Muslim communities you'll actually hear that the imam if not the whole or the person leading the prayer will recite prayers quite audibly or parts of prayers quite audibly. Is that again just custom or practice or?
2: Well look, once again this this is a personal prayer and often one must pray in their own language in their own way in whatever they are seeking at that time. So rather than being led by someone who is reciting some prayers, and these may be prayers of the Holy Prophet (laughs) which each individual may also be doing at at his own time and for emphasis being put on different aspects at different times and at different occasions. Mm -hmm. So our prayers are silent in that respect, that each individual has the option of praying in their own way and laying emphasis on whichever aspect of the prayer that they wish to at that time. So in that respect, that is, that is the form of our prayers at that time. If I could just also add to what Jahangir Sab has obviously sure. said about Bismillah as well. I think one thing that may also need to be pointed out here with regards to Bismillah after the Surah Fatiha. Um, one thing is clear in our minds is that the Bismillah is the opening verse of every chapter of the Holy Quran bar one Surah Tawbah and therefore when the chapter when the particular chapter is started to be recited then Surah Fatiha started to be recited from the beginning I should say so whenever it started from recited from the beginning then the Bismillah forms an integral part of that Surah and it must be recited as Jahangir Sahib has said either aloud or in their heart but when the chapter is being recited from the middle where Bismillah does not form part of that uh, verse, then it is not obligatory to recite Bismillah because it is not part of the preceding verse that the Imam or the person is reciting at that time. So with that distinction, I, I follow what Jahangir Zahab has said, and that should be borne in mind when we are saying our prayers as well.
1: Thank you for that. We'll move on to our next question from Nurlan. And again, Jahangir Zahab, this is something we have dealt with previously. It's about how prayers, there's five obligatory prayers in Islam, but there are occasions where because of timings, because of the necessity brought on by uh, the sheer scale of uh, people um, that prayers are joined and most commonly we've seen this happen between the two afternoon prayers, the Zohar and Asr prayer and indeed the evening prayer and the night prayer, the Maghrib and Isha. She's basically asking is that permissible?
0: It's permissible. Actually, the Holy Prophet Muhammad uh, had the practice of joining prayers for different reasons. And uh, in one of the hadith, or it's not really a hadith, but it's it's included in the hadith, um, one of the companions was actually asked about uh, how the Prophet, for what reasons, he used to join the prayers. And uh, it was said, uh, even only for the convenience of the people. So there were times when it was more convenient for the people so he would join the prayers. Although, of course, the, pre- the preferred uh, manner of, uh, of praying was to say every prayer separately. But there is a, a particular problem which is faced by people in the Northern Hemisphere. And I suppose down very south as well in the Southern Hemisphere, maybe in, in South America for example, um, where the, in winter the, the days will be very, very short. Mm-hmm. And we do find, for example, <coughs> Zohar prayer coming at one o'clock and then Asr prayer coming at half past two. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've hardly you know gotten out of our shoes to get in the mosque for the Zohar and back into our shoes again when we have to get out of them again to go back in for the Asr. So that, of course, is difficult for the people. Mm-hmm. And therefore the Zohar and Asr are joined. Mm-hmm. And also the same will happen around the time of Maghrib and Isha. The time between them is so short that actually it's, uh, it's kind of more, it makes sense to join the prayers together, but that's only for a few weeks during winter. And uh, in the beginning of winter, they're still separate, and at the end of winter, they're separate again. But somewhere, you know, where the the days are really, really short, you know, near the the winter solstice, at that point, the prayers will be be joined. That again is for the Imam to, to decide. And in our case here, we, we have uh, the presence of uh, the, uh, the Khalifa himself, who also decides for the mosque where he is in, and for some other mosques. So uh, this is how we do it. But it's not uh, a general practice, you know, by any means. It all depends on the circumstances.
1: Jazakumullah uh, for that, and her final question, uh, Dr. Zait I'm sort of going to combine her <coughs> and relents questions three and four, similar principle. She's talking about scenarios where someone's home alone, perhaps, mm-hmm. or in the middle of prayer. In each occasion, <clears> and the front bo- door bell rings. You know, the, fr- the bell rings on the door, or the phone goes. What should one do? Should we answer the phone, or should we answer the door, or should we continue finishing the prayer?
2: Well, there are certain aspects which you have to be borne in mind, and the first and foremost is that uh, when we stand up for prayer. We should be standing up with full concentration, having prepared for Salat in that manner by doing the ablution and getting into the preparation of the. So our prayers are in full concentration of keeping Allah in our mind and we try to obviously cut off all relationships surrounding Mm -hmm. us so that our attraction is is not, we are not distracted from our prayer as such. Mm -hmm. And the best place for that is perhaps the mosque and that is why prayers in the mosque are that much more meritorious but of course we do pray at home and there are distractions that we do encounter but Islam is such a wonderful faith that it allows us a degree of flexibility mm-hmm. and therefore we have to take each situation into account and see what the best option is and also the Holy Prophet Sallallahu has left us guidance in this particular instance as well there is uh, an incident reported in Hadith when Hazrat Aisha in fact came to the door and knocked on the door and the Prophet (coughs) was in prayer, however he went and opened the door and without conversing with her, without talking with her, he came back and continued his prayer. From from that it is absolutely clear that we can go away from the prayer uh, where where we are praying and for instance open the door to let someone in without conversing with her and that does not break our prayer at that time. However the uh, telephone is uh, something something new, something that we do encounter Uh, although there are answering machines and I suppose it could go to the answering machine and you could be left a message in that instance but if you think that there is a real emergency that you may be uh, encountering then you would have to break your prayer because you would have to answer the telephone and talk with the person on the other side so talking in Namaz is not permitted although in early Islamic history People used to converse while they were praying, but that later on the Prophet ﷺ gave guidelines on this. So as far as answering the telephone or having to talk with someone at the door is something that will violate your prayer, and therefore you would have to break your prayer and start afresh in that instance. So from these circumstances, it's clear that one is able to go away from the prayer as long as you're not conversing with someone, then come back to your prayer. But if you do talk, Uh, then that is something that would not be permitted. One other aspect comes to my mind, again in Hadith, the Prophet ﷺ has said that if a person, while he is praying, sees that his horse has become untied, then he is permitted, while he is praying, to go and tie his horse and come back and continue with his prayer to that extent, not having talked, of course. So that, I think, gives us a broad description of what is permitted while we are in in, the form of prayer at that time.
1: Um, the next question comes from Kamran Tariq Sahib from Vaughan in Canada. Aslam alaikum and thank you for your question. Um, Dr. Sahib, Kamran Sahib is asking us about genetically modified food. And the question he's relating to this is, is it halal, bearing in mind that what's actually happened is there's been an alteration, as mm-hmm. he puts it in his words, to Allah's creation?
2: Well, the dietary laws of Islam, in fact, are very clear. They're very simple when we compare them to other faiths, in fact. And the Holy Quran describes those categories of food which have been declared as haram and not permitted. And the categories are very simple in that respect. Anything that dies of his own accord, blood, the swine of flesh, or something that has been slaughtered with the name of any other than Allah having been pronounced on it. So from that it is quite clear that what are the prohibited categories of food and Allah says that he has provided for us uh, provision in the, in, in the earth which is both halal and has to be halal and tayyab. These are two, two aspects mm-hmm. that have to be borne in mind when we're talking about food in Islam as well. Tayyab meaning wholesome and that actually is something that could be personal to some, someone or personal to a, a category of people. So keeping that in mind Uh, We are quite clear about what is permitted in Islam and what is not permitted in Islam And by the fact that something has been genetically modified food Then we cannot consider that that is haram as such. It may be not wholesome If you are that way inclined so in that respect you may still wish to not partake of it But the verse of the Holy Quran with regard to changing the creation of Allah is something that actually is a prophecy that perhaps man will be able to change some aspects of the creation of Allah and genetic engineering is one aspect of that which has certainly come to light in the in the recent years. In the Quranic verse there is reference to cutting off the ears of cattle but that was to do with the practice that uh, uh, the uh, Arabs pre-Islam had of cutting ears off for instance as a sacrifice to their idols or gouging out the eyes of a camel, also as a sacrifice to their idols. So those, those categories of food would definitely have been not permitted in Islam, because they were haram in, in that respect, because they were for the idols. But that is not a reference to the genetically modified foods that we have today. Science has come a long way and there are uh, certain good aspects of science as far as genetic engineering is concerned, but there is also, even within the scientific Mm -hmm. uh, community, there is some alarm that people have raised regarding genetically modified foods and so on. If it's for crops, better crops or crops that are resistant to to diseases or resistant to drought, then obviously that is something that could benefit and feed the world at large so in that respect it could be beneficial but however we don't know the long-term effects of these genetically modified foods scientists do not know those yet because they have not gone through those trials to that degree and even in western countries there are very strict limits that are placed upon people who wish to undergo this form of genetic engineering. So from that aspect as well, you know, it comes back to the argument of what what the Quran says about food being wholesome. And if we consider that that is perhaps not the best for us, then we should obviously stay clear of that. So this is something that has to be understood from that angle, but we cannot definitely say that that is haram because the Holy Quran has explained what is halal and what is haram as as far as food is concerned. Yeah. So, on,
1: just sort of final point. One or two elements to this which come out of it. One, uh, on just taking genetically modified the next step further. We've seen the cloning of animals, for example, which takes it literally. Mm. Uh, I, I forget. The, was it Molly or Dolly? Dolly. The, Dolly. Dolly, the Dolly the sheep. You know, there you have a scenario that you have several Dolly the sheep or whatever. Those go along to a slaughterhouse, and that animal is then, uh, you know, obviously slaughtered. Is that halal? in that particular situation?
0: Well, the thing is that it's the same sheep. Yeah. It's just a cell taken out of one and... to it. Yes. You see, the thing is people, they, they don't uh, realize that there are two different ways of genetically modifying something. Mm-hmm. One is, for example, to take a gene out of a totally alien uh, creature or mm-hmm. plant and insert it <laughs> into an animal that you're going to eat. Like you could have a glow-in-the-dark rabbit. They've made those. but. The the problem is. I'm not aware of that. I
1: must keep a lookout the (laughs) next (laughs) time.
0: It would be quite helpful for me because I have to go and feed them quite late at night sometimes on my rabbits. But anyway, the thing is that uh, would it be safe to eat? We don't know when a gene, a foreign gene, is taken out of its own milieu Mm -hmm. and put into a new environment. There's no telling what it could do, what havoc it could Mm -hmm. wreak in the creature and on whatever will eat it later on. So that would be something which, although it might be halal, like Dr. Uh, as as uh, uh, you know, specified clearly, but it might not be be wholesome at all. Mm-hmm. But there is another thing which is helping God's creation as such. For example, if you have a, a breed of sheep or a breed of cow, for example, that because of inbreeding, has now got um, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's it's had certain deleterious effects, you know, the inbreeding on its genes. Now, taking healthy genes, knocking out those unhealthy ones and replacing them with healthy ones from other cows or other sheep, whatever the case it may be, that would be actually helping God's creation to be as He had wanted it to be, mm. and there was absolutely no harm in that, as Hazrat al-Abir, <laughs> had explained many times. But he also said that uh, as far as, as wanting to eat genetically modified things are concerned, he said, I wouldn't want to. He said, you're free to eat it if you wish, mm. but I wouldn't like to eat that because there's no telling what it could what, do um, to you. you and know? again, I mean, we
1: often all make conscious decisions, and again, it comes down to finding out a but bit more about... And what's natural
0: and what's not, not natural, mm, obviously. May, you know. Makes
1: sense. Mm. A final point before we move on from this question. Dr. Saab, you mentioned about the within Islam, we talk about halal food and tayyab food, and you talked about tayyib, and uh, you know, meaning wholesome. What is tayyab for one person mm. may not be tayyab for mm-hmm. a another. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the weight given to these two elements within Islam the same? I.e. food must be halal and tayyib. Um, but obviously, for example, and I'm thinking aloud here, but if you're a diabetic and you're going to sort of indulge in a heavily sugared dessert or something, that's obviously not tayyib for that particular individual.
2: Yeah, that, tayyib is very much personal. And it it could be that something that is medically not going to agree with you Mm -hmm. is something that you should stay clear of. So in that respect, Islam actually gives guidance to people regarding their eating habits, that you should eat that which your body systems are going to agree with, let alone the argument of diabetic or non-diabetic, there may be spicy food and non-spicy food. If spicy food does not agree with you, you may have been brought up on spicy food, but for certain reasons, an ulcer, a duodenal ulcer or whatever, that does not agree with you, then you should stay clear of it. Sometimes is easier said than done, but people will, you should listen to the advice that is given in by the Holy Quran in that respect. Also is the case with different communities. Now with the, the world having become a much smaller place, mm-hmm. we, we, we do see the diets that are consumed in different parts of the world, for instance. <laughs> and there are some things that are eaten in in the Far East, that perhaps we would not be able to, or I would not be able to actually consume at all, although they may be halal in that respect, they may be from the sea and so on, but there are some creatures that I personally would not be able to eat. So that is not tayyub for me, but it may be tayyub for Jahangir, a you know, gastronomic expert, so he may <laughs> agree with so us. Uh, so it is a very particular thing, it's a very personal thing, I and one should uh, eat what <laughs> is agreeable really to one's
1: person. <laughs> Jazakumullah, uh, gentlemen, I think, uh, as you said, there's personal preferences involved as well, Then, again, common sense should prevail. My thanks to uh, Kamran Saab uh, for his question. We're going to go down under, as they say, to Brisbane for our next question, and our questioner writing in um, is it's an interesting question. I th- suppose it follows on from when we're talking about halal food and halal meat um that the question she's asking is that after the death of animals where do they, their souls go do they go to heaven do they go to hell or do they have a designated place and she's been asked this by uh, non-muslim friends of hers in
0: well interestingly a question very similar to this was asked by somebody from down under as well uh, professor rag <laughs> Who I think was from uh, New Zealand, wasn't yes, that's he? Right, yes? yes, to the promised Messiah mm. himself. Mm. The promised Messiah said that every soul lives on. And he didn't specifically say that the animal souls go to, to paradise, the paradise of people as such, because we know that there isn't any mention of those uh, you know, animals in, in paradise of any sort. There isn't even any mention of jinn, for example, in paradise. All are human beings there. So, when we, even the, the jinn who are, as we know, one meaning of them is human beings anyway. The, we only see human beings mentioned in paradise in the Holy Qur'an. So, he said, however souls live on, and what happens is they return to Allah. Mm-hmm. Now, how they return, where they go, what state they go into, we, nobody knows. But the soul is something very specific, it's, it's very different from matter. Matter dissipates, it ends, it's finished, but the soul somehow lives on and every living thing has a soul so what allah does with those souls is only you know for allah to know we we know very little of that but as the proponents of islam said they live on so how and in what form we don't know
1: I, I think you know in time we shall all <laughs> discover the truth yes. I, well, I think also it's it, also be revealed indeed yes. but although it is sometimes very difficult particularly where pets are concerned for example yes. you know when you've got a household pet or c- a cat or People whatever. Or, absolutely. Yeah. And the sentiments attached with that.
0: Yes, but I think when you go to the next world probably many of the sentiments that we had on Earth will not survive. Mm. There will be other you know, things there. It'll be a totally different plane, totally different existence, so you know, it'll be something, something else. But as you said, when we go we'll find out, won't we?
1: Jazakumullah, <laughs> <laughs> my thanks also to a, from Australia for a question. Our next question comes from Fahim Anwar Saab here in the UK. as alaikum Fahim Saab. Thank you uh, for your question. Um, Dr Zaid Saab, he's relating instances about comparing Islamic wedding ceremonies along with Christian wedding ceremonies. And um, in particular, Fahim Saab is pointing to the actual vows which are taken in court, in church, for example, the richer for poorer mm-hmm. in sickness and in health, so on and so forth. And he's asking that this promise is obviously made between the couple, um, it's a personal commitment they make in front of everyone, and that then amounts to the acceptance of marriage. And he's saying, again, it acts as a reaffirming the obligations each one has, mm-hmm. the the couple have to each other. He compares that to the Islamic uh, ceremony of the Nagar where he's saying and i'm quoting him here it does not have such a personal commitment made between the bride and the groom other than the acceptance of the marriage where the person will stand up and agree to the marriage and of course the hakmer which is related to that um he's then putting that in the context of that whenever someone enters the fold of islam Whenever joins a community, they take an oath of allegiance. And that actually, again, reaffirms one's principles to faith and commitment. And equally, within the Amdian Muslim community, all our auxiliary organisations, for example, have their own solemn pledge, which again affirms the oneness of God Almighty, the uh, prophethood and the uh, finality and seal of the prophethood, of the holy prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, but also a commitment To ensuring that a person behaves according to, as best they can, the true traditions of Islam and being a good Muslim. How do the two compare? And I I guess what the gist of what he's really asking here is that in Christian ceremonies there's a personal commitment and vows are taken, yet when it comes to the Islamic nikah that's not the case.
2: Well I suppose commitment to each other is something that can be quite personal and there is nothing uh, stopping a couple from committing to each other uh, in their own private way and making these promises to each other which they should always try to fulfill and not to try to make any, break any promises that have been made. That Islam is very clear on how bad it is to break a promise that you have made. So a promise between a couple is something that can always be done by the couple themselves. But as far as the formal marriage ceremony is concerned in Islam, we know that this is the solemnization of the Nikah is something that is done in the presence of witnesses. It is a public announcement and there is a sermon that is involved in that. And when we look at the basis of when we look at the sermon itself, then we come to realise that the vows or the what is being promised between each other is perhaps of much greater importance than what we find in in, in the ceremonies mm-hmm. elsewhere. So we have to you know look at that from that angle that we are calling God to witness in the Islamic form of marriage. We are not calling the people who are present there to witness us. It is God we have in, in our minds and bearing that in mind that becomes a very far more potent message for the couple and for what they are agreeing to. So in fact that, that, that is the, the agreement, the contract that they are entering into and I think it's useful if I can just give you the translation yes, yes. The Holy Prophet Wasallam, selected, had selected three verses from the Holy Quran, in which he would always recite, and the, that, that would be for the couple to consider these, to think about them, and to then either or accept the marriage, keeping these in mind. If I can give you a translation of just the verses, he says, O ye people, make your Lord your shelter, who created you out of one soul, and created of its kind your spouses and thus multiplied men and women and fear Allah with whose name you beseech him and be mindful of the rights of relations of the womb Verily, God is watching you. So the aspect of righteousness and of Allah being the witness at that stage is very much emphasized. The second one is O ye believers be mindful of your duty to Allah and say the straightforward thing so you are being, being emphasized that you must be very clear in your dealings with each other. Allah will set your doings right and forgive your sins. And he who obeys Allah and his apostle, surely he achieves great success. And the last one, O ye who believe, fear Allah and let every soul look to what it sends forth for the morrow. And fear Allah, surely Allah is well aware of what you do. So this actually brings home, you know mind of the couple and the gathering that Allah is the witness over all this and there is a contract of marriage that is being entered into and the emphasis is laid upon righteousness among between yourselves and that you should be very clear unambiguous in your dealings with each other so your vows in that respect hold very far greater value to that degree so having, repeat, having listened to these verses of the Holy Quran the words of Allah himself chosen by the Prophet sal- 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 that actually brings more importance in the minds of the couple who are being married at that, that time. And that should be the basis of the marriage that in Islam. So it's a more important message, I think, than what we find in other cultures.
1: Um, the, pardon? No, I was going to <laughs> say there's an important role for education here as well for the couple, because it's not just too often the vows. Again, uh, in, in, in Christianity, for example, again, in uh, all faiths we believe at their beginning were well, much the same. The, the, any is always, it starts off with, we are gathered here in the sight of God, and mm. so on and so forth. But coming to the Islamic uh, ceremony in Jahangir the issue of education that many people, again, what Dr. Saab has just explained just now, perhaps aren't as made aware of you know, what, the obligations that they're getting into. And again, the is quite specific also about the obligations and the rights of the husband and wife.
0: Yes, I mean taking up on what Dr. Yeah. Saab said, who very beautifully put it that actually, the the solemnity of this of this yeah. occasion is of quite a different level, or, or, you know, again in, in Islam compared to others. In that the the words are the very words of God mm-hmm. Himself, and may I remind that the, the, these wording, the, the, this wording, you know, that we see, you know, that I that I'm, I'm going to you know look after you and. In health and in sickness, in you know, in uh, riches and uh, poverty, whatever it is, for rich or for poor, etc. Uh, these words are not from God. These were added in later on by people, and they are by no means used by all Christians all over the world. I mean, this is one of the f- the formulae used by the, the, the Church of England, but it's uh, not it's not necessarily used by many other denominations of Christianity. Everyone has their own, basically. Ours is taken from God Himself, and. To, to, you know to to really um, bring the solemnity of the occasion to bear upon the people God is saying that remember, you know, what you're getting into right now and the occasion And God calls to witness the very creation of mankind mm-hmm. Saying that I am the one speaking to you now and I made you people from that one cell that single cell and mm-hmm. made us mate out of, Out of it and here you are today So fear me don't act in any way that will You know, because you you know you come from me, you're going to come back to me again. So everything you do now, and in particular in relation to this uh, marriage contract which you're taking, you have to fear me because you'll have to answer for anything you do to me. And also, if you think about it, you know, some marriages end immediately. One of the partners can die when they walk out of of the the church or wherever they're getting married. They never have the occasion to look after the, the partner. God is telling them to actually be aware of their duty to Him. Because that is something which continues at all times, whether you're married or not, whether, whether you're you know, going to live long or you're going, to li- you're going to live for only a few more hours. That's the most important thing that we are going to go back to God. So this is a very solemn thing, a very solemn occasion. And all this is brought to bear upon the people in those very words of, of, of God Himself, the God from whom we emanate. So I think that's a very solemn thing. In, in terms of education, as you were saying, mm. I think that one thing which maybe m- might need to be emphasized a little bit more in our ceremonies is for those people who don't have the benefit of understanding the Arabic language. I think that maybe they should be told exactly what the meaning of the, ser- the sermon is, so that they can you know, really reflect upon it before they actually enter into the contract and then it'll have all the more meaning for them you know, during Absolutely. the ceremony. I think that, that bit of education perhaps needs to be done. And it's a yeah.
1: practical uh, suggestion there, but my okay. thanks to you both, of course, and my thanks also to Fahim and Saab for your question. Um, we're going to travel to India for our next question which comes from Matiq Sahib. Assalamualaikum, Sahib, and thank you for your question. It relates specifically to the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, who we regard as the promised Messiah and the expected Imam Mahdi, as predicted by the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace yes. be upon him. Um, he is actually referring to the mission, and he said that when the Mahdi would arrive, one of his sort of roles would be that he would reform all Muslims uh, and unite all Muslims. And indeed he is saying at the Iqsaab that one of the roles was to get other fe- people of faith to unite all faiths. And then he puts that in the context of that today, in in the current age. Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, who claimed, uh, and and we indeed believe him to be the promised Messiah, has come, and yet we still see Islam. Let's leave other faiths aside, but even Islam itself is divided into 73 sects. Uh, The question he's asking, um, Why are we still divided? And why do other faiths exist?
0: Well, the first thing I need to set straight is that the Holy Prophet Muhammad never said that the Imam Mahdi will come and unite all Muslims. Mm -hmm. And he also never said that he would convert all Christians into Muslims. Mm -hmm. So this is a misconception that our questioner has here. He did not say that. (coughs) So when he did not say that, why should we expect it? Mm -hmm. What he did say was that his community would be divided into 73. And only one would be correct, only one would be, would be saved. The others would be finnar, they'd be in fire. And that means many things, one of them being, meaning war, strife and suffering. So this is what he said. So if anything, we should expect to see that situation. And this is exactly what we're seeing now. But of course, the Imam Mahdi salam, is calling people from all those sects to come and join him. Because the Holy Prophet salam, also gave that order. In one hadith, it is reported that he, he said, which is a very well known hadith, that if you hear the call, meaning the call that the Imam Mahdi has, has come, and he himself is calling people, then you should go to him, wala habwan You should go to him even if you have to crawl on your knees over snow and ice to, to reach him. And you have to, to also do the bay'ah on him because he's Khalifatullah al Mahdi, he's Allah's Khalifa, Allah's vicegerent on earth, the Mahdi. So that's one thing. So we should expect to see some Muslims, at least, obeying that order of the Prophet wa sallam, and going into his community, the community of the Imam. Wa sallam. And also in another hadith, there was somebody who asked the Prophet, wa sallam, he said, that after this goodness that you've brought, will there be evil? He said, yes, there will. Mm-hmm. Then he said, and then after that, will there be goodness? He said, yes, but it will be polluted, it will be tainted. He said, and after that, will there be any evil? He said, yes, there will. And uh, He said that it will be as follows. He said there will be a people who will be speaking our tongue meaning Arabic And they will be of our own people of our own folk mm-hmm. And they will be calling people to Annar, nar they will be called to the fire and whoever listens to them will will be dragged right up To the gates of hell mm-hmm. So he said so what should I do? O messenger of Allah, if I uh, you know come to that time He said Well if you get to that time he said then stick to to the Jamaat and its imam. He said, and if there's no Jamaat, and if there's no imam, he said, then abandon all those sects. And he used the word sects. Abandon them all. And go and grab hold of your teeth, to uh, grab hold of a root of a tree, and stay like that until death overcomes you. So... That's what the Holy Prophet ﷺ, said to do. So that's an order again to abandon those sects and to go and join the Jamaat and the Imam. And as we know, we only have one Jamaat in the whole entire Muslim world today that has an international Imam who has the same standing in, res- in regard of respect and obedience as a Prophet would. That's what's called al khilafatu ala alamin Hajj al-Nabu, the Caliphate on the style of Prophethood. Whereas where we see if the Prophet ﷺ had said something, he had ordered, uh, issued an order, all Muslims, wherever they are in the world, have to obey. So this is a kind of caliphate which, which enjoys the same obedi- level of obedience for Muslims. Nobody can say, oh, I'll obey if I want to and if I don't I-, I won't. You can't do that. So there's only one Imam like that and that's the Imam of the, ima- the Jamaat Ahmadiyya, who was, which was founded by the Imam. This is what the Prophet ﷺ said. As regards Christians, of course, he's going to preach the message and he's going to show the, 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 you know, wherever Christians went wrong. But as once the Amir of, uh, of Jamaat in Palestine, Israel, said to, to the President of, uh, of Israel, he said that the, the Imam Mahdi a.s. has come to show us where we went wrong and he's come to show you where you've gone wrong. And he's come to show the Christians where they went wrong. So he's come to correct all of us. So obviously he's going to also have Christians within his ranks. And, uh, and so he does, of course he does. But there was no prophecy whereby, I mean this is quite childish to think, that the Prophet ﷺ, the greatest of all Prophets himself, Muhammad al-Mustafa ﷺ, he came and didn't manage to do something, which now some other person lesser than him is going to manage to do. So that is a little bit childish, I think, and it's, a, it's disrespectful towards the Prophet This is not how Allah works, this is not how his Prophets you know, behave when they come to earth. They come as humble people, they give out a message, and then whoever listens to them benefits. And whoever doesn't will have to pay the price. That's how it is. <coughs> just before we move on, Dr. Zaid Sab, just in terms of
1: the message of the Promised Messiah, I think that's an important one. And Zhang Yisab's talked and, and put quite uh, correctly and in great detail the sort of context in which it would appear and the correction he's corrected the understanding of mm-hmm. our questioner as well but the message was not a new message it was a different message it was one of unification of faiths it was one of love over hate it's one of peace over war it's one of you know the remembrance of God at the at, in the centre of your life so it's it's messages that the world has heard before and it's a revival of those messages
2: absolutely i mean that has been the way of prophets of all prophets that they have called to the truth they have called to towards peace they have called towards god but the distinction with the holy prophet sallallahu <laughs> was that he was the final law bearing prophet because allah had perfected religion he said and islam had been chosen as as the faith so the final victory of islam which is peace in fact isn't it was promised to the Holy Prophet Sallallahu that the message of Islam would prevail over all other faiths meaning the message of peace would be something that would unite people of different faiths and attract them to the banner of Islam and to the message that the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Sallam, Sallam. Sallam. but according to his teachings uh, Muslims would go away from that message and as Jahangir Sahib has said then a time would come when an Imam would be sent by Allah to bring people back it would not only be Muslims back but as he has said people of all faiths would be brought back to the message of God Almighty as had been prophesied through different prophets and then they would recognize the beauties of Islam and that would be the winning of hearts of people the winning of humanity (coughs) and brought under one banner and that is the banner of certainly that there is no God but Allah and the Prophet of Muhammad is is, is his messenger. So this is exactly why the promised Messiah and Mahdi was sent as had been prophesied, as had been awaited by the whole of humanity that a teacher would come, Christians believe that, Jews believe that, that a teacher would come who would unite people, and unite them and have an association with God Almighty. So the Promised Messiah, we are absolutely sure, obviously he himself has said in his writings, did not bring a new teaching, a new message. He did not need to bring a new teaching or a new message because the final law had been sent. The Holy Quran in its pristine form is present with, the, with us even today. And the teachings had been forgotten by Muslims and others. And that is what the role of the Promised Messiah Salaam, was, that he united people. When we talk about unity, and we talk about the world and the world around us, we do see unity, because we see unity in, as Jangi Sabe has said, in the Jamaat, in the community, in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, spread over 200 countries. We have 150-200 million people, but we have one spiritual worldwide head of the community, the Khalifa, who has his roots in, in, in Islamic terminology. So he has been the one who has at present united us in this day and age under the banner of Khilafat and brought us back to the teachings of Islam and prophesied by the promised Messiah of the Holy Prophet So we do see this transformation that Atiq is talking about, what the Prophet has said but this process was going to be a slow process The, the verses of Surah Fathah give indication of this that the spread of Islam in the early days would be very quick but once the Promised Messiah would come to bring back people to Islam that would be a very slow process and the Bible also talks about this about the sower having gone forth and having sowed his seed and then there would be sprouting and that would be a very slow process so this is exactly in teachings with the Holy Quran and of other, uh, other scriptures and that is what we are seeing is that the Jamaat in 125 years is making progress uh, some people may call it slow, but I would call it fast in that respect as well that the Jamaat is spread far and wide in that respect under the banner of one great teacher.
0: Following uh-huh. on from what uh, Dr. Saab has just said, I, I just remembered something as well, that there is a prophecy in the Holy Qur'an which says that that will be a time when it, was a, it will be as if all the messengers have been brought hmm. back to life again. They've been uh, you know, sent, hmm. sent once again. And uh, this unifying factor which the promised Messiah was supposed to bring, it doesn't mean, of course, that he's going to you know, gather all people on earth. It's only those who are willing. It doesn't mean that he has the power to, you know, like, to bring them into his community as such. But one thing which he will do is he's going to present the great messengers of God all over the world, the ones who appeared you know, in different parts of the world, um, in their true light. And it will be as if they've come back again. So he's going to tell them, the, the Muslims first of all, that you have, um, uh, you've, you kind of attributed all kinds of things to the Prophet Muhammad which, which were not true. Come to the real Muhammad, this is the real Muhammad that I'm telling you about now. And he said the same to the Christians, you've attributed all manner of things to Jesus, peace be upon him, come to the real Jesus, this is the real Jesus. And he'll say the same to the Hindus about Krishna and Ram. He'll say the same to the Buddhists about Buddha. The same to the Zoroastrians about Zoroaster, etc., etc., peace be upon them all. And it will be as if they're being presented to the world, you know, afresh. And when they come and look at the real um, messenger of theirs, who had brought their religions in the past, they will find that the message that he brought was nothing but Islam. The, the very essence of it will be Islam as such. And Islam will be the thing which will unify them all. So once they understand what their prophets, their messengers really were, they can then understand the message of Islam as being not distinct at all, but a follow, it's just a, f- a continuation of all that, you see. And uh, that's why Allah calls him, uh, he called him Imam Mahdi salam, in one of his revelations, fi He is Allah's champion in the mantle of all prophets. So he's come to, to show the world what their real prophets were. because It's because of all these things that they've attributed to them that they're so divided, mm-hmm. you know. So it seems that Krishna has nothing to do with Jesus, who has nothing to do with Muhammad, who has nothing to do with Zoroaster. But in fact, when you remove all the, the things, that have the, the incrustations of you know, the, all the myths that have gathered around their, bod- their pe- person, person pe- persona, then you'll see that they're all one. And that's a unifying factor, and that's what we've seen in the Jama'at. Jama'a. Yes. Gentlemen,
1: Jazakum Allah I'm reminded the fourth Khalifa, the fourth leader of the Amdiya Muslim community, once very beautifully put it, that, and, and that was reiterating again what the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community, the Promised Messiah said, that we hold all religions, the Amdiya Muslim community, that at their origin and in their essence, are the same essence of truth. Um, and that they have the same foundation. So, and that's something that we hold very centrally to our thinking. Um, gentlemen, thank you very much, and my thanks also to Adiq Saab for his question. We're going to stay with the theme of the advent of the promised Messiah and and, uh, and uh, the, but move on to more the context in the context of the timeline associated with his appearance. Um, Nadia Rasul Saiba, as writes to us from Canada and she says that some of my friends that she's been having uh, a discussion with says that she there's a hadith that the promised messiah peace be upon him will appear 1400 years after the holy prophet of islam peace be upon him uh, now she's saying in that context can you help me understand why the promised messiah has appeared as uh, she's suggesting 1300 years after when it was her friends have been pointing to a hadith that's not actually quoted specifically here, that he would come at the end of 1400 years. Dr. Zaitsa.
2: But there are many, sign, many great signs and prophecies that were given about the coming of the Messiah, and many of them talked about the circumstances in which he would come and how the world would be, uh, and also many uh, other signs of the eclipses were given. So keeping that in mind, and also keeping this in mind, we have to actually look at the hadith, which we don't have Mm -hmm. at present. But there may be uh, some confusion about whether it is 1400 years, or whether it was the 14th century after Mm -hmm. Islam that the promised Messiah would would come. And it is actually, the Holy Prophet was talking about a timeline in which he talked about the progress of Islam after him in 300 years of great progress of Islam and that is exactly what we we saw. Then he talked about a thousand years of darkness would prevail over Islam in which there would be no caliphate, there would be monarchs who would rule Muslims but they would be far away from Islam and then following that the time would come when Allah would, would seize the opportunity of sending a teacher who would bring Muslims back to Islam and back to its pristine form. So when we consider that timeline, that is actually 1300 years, but at the beginning of the 14th century. And that actually tallies with when the promised Messiah salam, came. It was the 14th, at the head of the 14th century is when he was sent to the earth to actually fulfill the timeline and to fulfill the prophecies that were destined for his coming at that time. And having looked at that, then other Muslims actually have talked about that this was the time for the coming of the Messiah and Mahdi and the Prophet ﷺ himself has said that if I had not been sent then someone else would have been raised as the Messiah at that time because this was in fact in fulfillment of the prophecies that the Holy Prophet ﷺ had foretold about the coming of the promised Messiah at that time.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: Dr. Sub, that's very clear. Uh, and precise. Just one more sort of sub-question to that, Jiangu sub before we move on. Um, the other question, if we were to suppose that the premise of the question was correct about this Hadith, then again, you know, another hundred years have <laughs> now passed. You know, we're, we're, we're what, 115? 125
2: yeah, 25
1: years, rather. Yes. 125 years on from the advent of the promised Messiah. Yet, there's no other Messiah, which can sort, yeah, of, take, sort of make that claim. Yeah, yeah.
0: I remember there was a time when the mullahs used to say, "Our, you know, our hardened opponents. Yeah. They used to say um, that even if there's only one day left in the 14th century, Allah will make it become so long mm. that the Imam Mahdi al-Islam and Jesus will be able to descend, etc. And, and you know, they'll do all their work and, and everything and uh, just so that he can do it within the, 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 the 14th century. But then the 14th century was over, the 15th century started, and I remember, I was in Mauritius at the time, we were celebrating the beginning of the 15th century, Um, and saying that, you know, no other Imam Mahdi or uh, Messiah has appeared, as you said, and there's only one claimant, Mm -hmm. so, you know, hello. (laughs) Everyone should know who it is. (laughs) Um, But the thing is that uh, I think personally as well, I I agree with Dr. Saab, that this person, she's uh, got mixed up on... The, 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 the thing about the, uh, the Imam Hadith coming in the 14th century, and the 14th century does not mean 1400 years, it means 1300 plus. Yeah. So, as the 1300 has ended, You're the 14th century centuries starts. Centuries. And may I add, there's an interesting thing about the name of the promised Messiah. We might have said it previously on faith matters, but uh, the geometric uh, value or the abjad mm-hmm. value, you know, every letter in Arabic has a numerical value of the name of the promised Messiah. And uh, he, this was revealed to him by Allah, actually, he didn't know himself. He said that my, my family name is Mirza, but my own name is Ghulam Ahmed. So he said, in fact, because, you know, according to Islamic, um, you know, n- nomenclature, you have to add the, 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 the place name as well to your name. So he was called Ghulam Ahmed Qadiani. He said, when you add all the letters, the, the values of the letters in, in that, it comes to a total of 1,300. That is so true, I also checked it. Mm-hmm. And that's even in his name, I mean, ha- and he wasn't the one who chose his name nor his birthplace, so that's just one extra sign to show that this is the person who was supposed to come at the very you know, end of the 13th of the thirteenth century and the beginning of the 14th century.
1: And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panellists and Sages Akumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.